There are times when it's important that we would just learn to leave well enough alone, especially uh, when things are already perfect. I'll give you an example. I'll throw this uh, image out your way. It'll sound somewhat absurd, I know, as I develop, but, but just bear with me. So there's a grad student. Said grad student is, um, say, writing, studying impressionistic painters. And uh, he or she goes to a local museum uh, where there are some of the works of Claude Monet on display. And said grad student is standing there before them and thinking to himself or herself, you know, I don't know. Um, those lilies seem out of focus. They, they seem kind of fuzzy. They, they lack definition. And so grad student brings out his or her brush and begins to make improvements, adding definitions, making it clear, bringing it into focus. Now, after this person is hauled away and imprisoned and heavily fined and all, all of that, we would then join with those who have hauled them rightfully away and say, You fool! You fool! You have taken this priceless work of art and added to it your worthless suggestions. You fool. My friends, we are guilty of doing the very same thing when we doubt the good sufficiency of God's Word and we doubt the good sufficiency of God's Word and add to it. It's no different than the fool in the art gallery before Claude Monet's painting and our little brush. Let's look together uh, at Matthew chapter 12. Take a look at this idea, this warning really that's here for us, and the encouragement as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. We're getting back into this series through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's the first of the four Gospels, first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, we are picking up in verse 1 and reading down to verse 14. So Matthew 12, starting in verse 1, moving on down through verse 14. Hear now the Word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is of man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. 
But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. Let's pray together. Father of mercies, indeed in Your Word You do reveal to us beautiful things, truth of Yourself, of us, of all this world, reality. Well, of course, because You are the Creator of all things, including ourselves. How else can we find how to live but to look to You? We ask that You would help us to see more, increasingly so, increasingly clearly this morning. We ask that You would uh, cultivate within the soil of our hearts a receptiveness, a humility, all of us here, uh, to Your Word, to what You are speaking even now, here in this moment, in this place. Oh, we have come in with different concerns and uh, different things uh, weighing upon us and even um, lightening our hearts at the same time. We come to this passage, we come to any passage, any text here in, your, in the Scriptures with certain presuppositions and assumptions, and we ask that you would clear out that which would, would uh, lead us astray and uh, prove to be misguiding rather than guiding. We, we ask that you would help us. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to uh, say something, just kind of a, as a principle, and then I want to throw a question out your way. So let me first throw the, the principle out here, and we want to set that up on the shelf, kind of as an aside. Eh, not really an aside, but it's on the shelf. And then dive into the question. All right, so the principle is this. God's commands are for our deepest good. God's commands, every single one of them, are for our deepest good. They are all of His commands are an expression of the character and concern, the passion and purposes of the very God in whose image and likeness we have been made. So put all that together. Okay, Him, His commands, as an expression of who He is, we made in His image according to His likeness, if you will, a triad that tells us there is a fittedness. There is a fittedness between the law of God and the, the lives of men. Or if I can put it this way, we're hardwired. Hardwired for what it is He reveals to us. There's a resonance down deep within. You can suppress it, but there's a resonance nonetheless deep within every human heart to what He reveals of Himself for us. Okay, that's the principle. Put it up on the shelf. All right? Don't forget it. And here's the question. What's this text about? It's not a bad question. Um, what is this text about? I've got to tell you, I've, I've really agonized over that quite a bit over the last several days. At one level, you can say, one way of answering the question is to say, well, it's about the Sabbath. I, I mean, um, this is about a creation ordinance. That is to say, uh, something that God has spoken and put into the very fabric of in the, the weave of the cosmos. Okay? Um, it, it's one, you may know this, it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments, right? You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, Exodus 20 is, is one of the two places you can find the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments listed, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20. I'm just going to read you a portion here of the, the text uh, pertaining to this commandment. 
um, in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, just going to stop there. There's actually more, but just stop there. Um, so all, every day is His. Everything is His. Every day is His. But, but the commandment, what it has to do with, is, is the idea of setting aside, of, of, if you will, sanctifying, setting aside this first day of the seven and um, for, for, uh, his, for, for special heightened uh, attention given unto him. It is meant to be a, a Shavat, which means a cessation, a cessation of our, of our normal labors, of, uh, given towards love of neighbor and works of mercy and the rest of the body and, and uh, the worship of the true and, and living God. Absolutely. It is, it is rightly understood um, as an expression of trust in him, trust in his provision that we would this be the cessation of our normal labors. So, of course, when you think about that, it has to be therein is a trust in His provision for us to supply what we need. And and if you think about it from a, a relational dynamics, every relationship, the, the growth of any and maturing of any relationship demands the investment of time. Right. And so, God in His mercy, God in His grace, God in His love gives us this command and His built it into the very fabric of everything that that is. Well, this text is kind of about that. But actually there's something else, something even, well, I'm not going to say bigger, but something different. Because really what's going on here is in Matthew 12 is the Sabbath is actually a presenting issue. It's the presenting issue. It's, it's in the course of the rising opposition, the percolating hostility of the Jewish officials against Jesus. The crowds may be gathering. His popularity may be swelling. And, and coupled with that, maybe even a case could be made in proportion to that, opposition and pushback is coming from the Jewish officials. Especially as Jesus is pushing on them regarding their legalistic interpretation, understanding, and teaching of the Old Testament. Adding to, adding to, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, what was really there, like barnacles upon the, the hull of, of a ship. Um, comes clear, it becomes clear here that part of what Jesus wants us to understand is this. The Lord's commands, the Lord's commands are indeed coming back to what I put on the shelf, truly good. The Lord's commands are indeed truly good. And since they are truly good, they ought to be adhered to, but never added to. You understand the distinction? It becomes very clear in this text. The Lord's commands are indeed truly good, deeply, highly, widely true. And because of that, they should be adhered to in every way, but never added to in any way. Three things I want to look at, kind of turning this and looking at this from different angles that I think are very, very important for us here this morning. It's there in your outline. First, our need to understand the temptation to do this, this legalism, adding to his word. 
The need to understand the temptation. Secondly, the, the need that we have to be aware and be wary of the symptoms in our own lives. And then thirdly, the cure, coming to an understanding and, and gladly submitting to the Lord's authority. Okay? So those three things, understanding the temptation, awareness of the symptoms, and submission to the Lord's authority. Let's look at these in, in turn. First, understanding the, the temptation. Here's vital we understand something of the, the cultural context and the heart issues here in play. So in those days, this, Jesus is speaking in a first century Jewish context. It's vital we understand something and, and it's, as it serves to inform some of the background as to what's going on here uh, in, this, in this text. So much, so much of Jewish life was ruled and governed by uh, oral traditions, that is to say, rules that the rabbis created uh, surrounding the applications of the Old Testament law that they created and passed down, all right? And um, there were a, a collection of this, and we now know, we know it today as what's referred to as the Mishnah, right? And the Mishnah, which is a part of the Talmud, the Mishnah, among other things, had many lists in there, and one of the lists had to do with the Sabbath, okay? And in that listing, there are 39 different things that you are forbidden to do on the Sabbath. Actually, it's listed as 40 less 1. Okay? I don't know why. But anyway, it was, it was 39. Okay? Two of them have to do with this. Okay? One has to do with being forbidden to reap on the Sabbath day, forbidden to reap of grain on the Sabbath day, or any activity that bears any any, any resemblance thereof. You see where that's going? First part, what we read a moment ago. Okay? And then the second thing is, it has to do with forbidding healing. So not just uh, reaping, but healing of non-life-threatening um, diseases or injuries or whatever. See how that's connected to what we're seeing here in Matthew 12? This is what's in the Mishnah. And, and the rabbis, they're, the, the Pharisees are dialed in. Oh, well, they dialed in. That's all they talked about. Okay, and they're watching, they're listening, they're observing what, what Jesus is, is about and what he's doing here. Um, now, before we start critiquing this, unless we just start pointing fingers at them and anybody else we want to call a Pharisee in modern day today, we ought to understand something of the origins. Where does this, where is an impulse to do this kind of thing, to, to add to, to create a Mishnah, if you will, a 21st century Mishnah. What would, what, what's the origin of, of, a, of a motivation to do something like that? Well, you have to understand that, that likely some of it was good intentions. These aren't monsters. These are human beings convinced that they're doing a good thing. So likely out of a devotion to God. And likely out of a concern for His people that they would not transgress the law of God. You see, it begins out of a good motivation, but then it goes awry. Because a lot of actually mixed in with those motivations are two other things, at least these other two things. One would be fear. Fear of the pull and influence of the world. We've got to protect ourselves. Not just fear, but pride. The presumption that man can improve upon and add to what God has declared. You throw that fear and that pride into the mix and you're going to have an ugly, ugly fruit coming out. And it does. It comes out in some ugly ways. I said, again, we just need to understand something of what's the dynamics in play here, understanding that good intentions certainly can go awry. We need to be aware of that. All of us here, 
lest we fall into the same problems. I mean, we have a long history. A long history. I'm going to just give you two quick examples of good intentions gone awry. I mean, you know, it wasn't that many years ago that some well-intended, I guess, I don't know what the field would have been, um, civil engineering or horticulture or some combination thereof, of, of putting this um, shade vine into the, the southeast. It's called kudzu. Introducing that, thinking this was a good idea, and now it just covers up all the roadsides. Or, another good intended, what great idea, introducing Asian carp to, to ponds in the Midwest to clean up the algae and the, this, the junk. And now, with some floods that took place, they filled up Lake Barkley and Lake Kentucky. I mean, it's just crazy. How's that working for us? These good intentions gone awry. It can happen to us. It does happen to us. I want to read you this quote here from Jerem Barr's great book. If you want to plunge into this topic a bit more, his great book, Delighting in the Law of the Lord. It just came in a couple of years ago. Delighting in the Law of the Lord. It's actually in your, your quotes page. It's about halfway down on a long, much longer quote. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. But the second half of it, I'm going to pick up. Jesus tells us that any such rules will do nothing to make us genuinely holy or protect us from sin. Tattoos and ear piercings. Coloring one's hair, wearing it in spikes or ringlets, or any such external cultural practices will not hinder a person's spiritual growth or moral maturity. And avoiding these things will not help, simply because they, will, they all affect the outside of a person rather than the heart. The same is true with rules about books, movies, music, and so on. Again, the rules we design for spiritual purity and maturity are legion, yet they have no spiritual value. In truth, they are spiritually damaging rather than spiritually helpful. Now, I want to come back to that again, and I hope to, but I just want to say this again. The Lord's commands are truly good, and so we need to be adhering to them, yes, but never adding to them. Being aware of, aware of the temptation here. Okay, let's move on to the second point, an awareness of the symptoms. So we're seeing something Something of the cause, where this is coming from, of the disease. How about now the course? How it plays itself out. And so that, we, that we might be aware of this as it's taking hold in our own lives. What you see here is really something of a collapse of the first and second greatest commandments. The first one being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one being to love your neighbor as yourself. And the symptoms are actually, really, you could trace it, you could boil it down to this, an utter collapse of those two things. And you see this is something of a case study here in Matthew 12. Uh, first, I'll, just, I'll start with the second, a loss of concern for neighbor. We absolutely see that here with the Pharisees. A case study, you have two situations of need presenting themselves. And how do the Pharisees respond? Okay, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Jesus was, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. All right, skipping down to verses 9 and 10. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So what's the lens here? How do they see? How do they see? 
Do they see opportunities for mercy? No. They see just the violation of their damn rules. I lose, use that term seriously. Because this is all of the pit of hell. It smells like sulfur. Okay? That's what they're concerned about. The violation of their rules. Not mercy, not love, not justice, not faithfulness. Rules. They are concerned with the external. With checking boxes. They have little understanding. They, they, certainly, Jesus is going to, in essence, tease them. Have you not read? Have, have you not read? They've memorized it. They can repeat it backwards. But they haven't understood. They haven't understood the, the intention of these laws, these, these rules, these commands. So you see this loss of concern for neighbor and then a loss of devotion to God. Now how do you see that here? Well, my goodness, and their resistance to Jesus. Right? I mean, listen to their accusations. It's not really against the disciples, it's against Him, right? I mean, if it, they're accusing the followers of the leader, which means they're accusing the leader. What's the matter with you, Jesus? This is what your disciples are doing. What are you teaching them? How are you leading them? Listen to their accusations. Right? Watch them as they're trying to entrap him. They're in their synagogue. Synagogue. And then listen. Listen and, and watch the grinding of their teeth. I guess listen and watch. As, as, they're, as they're plotting now to try and get rid of him. And so we see this resistance, this steadfast. Where is this coming from? What's the origin? What are the roots of that? They are serving a false god. They are serving a false god, a god of their own creating, a god of their own making. I know that sounds harsh, but think with me. What are they doing? They're saying, this is who God is. This is what He commands. This is what it takes. This is what it means to live faithfully before Him. This is who He is. This is what you need to do. So this is what they've created, and now they're defending that. At all costs, they're going to defend that. Against the face of all evidence to the contrary, they're going to defend that. And steadfastly so. So these are the symptoms, this loss of concern for others, and a neighbor, and lack of loss of devotion towards God, and this is what happens, my friends, when we lose our way here. It's the inevitable result when we lose our way. Losing our way. Let me give you an example. Have you heard of the 2002 British invasion of Spain? It happened. It did. The Royal Marines in 2002 were conducting an exercise. The plan was to invade, have a beach landing there at Gibraltar, which is a British territory. They got their GPS coordinates mixed up. They hit the beach of a little village just off the mark a little bit, but enough off the mark, in Spain. They invaded a foreign power. Now, fortunately, nobody noticed. No big deal. But what if it was two other nations? Let's play with this. Let's say it's 2017. And it's not two allies, British, Britain and, and Spain. Let's say it's, oh, I don't know, Japan and North Korea. How's that going to go over? 
pretty poorly. Um, this is what happens. It's a danger. It's a seriousness. When we lose our way, when we drift into this legalism, this form, this branch, this of legalism, of adding to the word of God. It's a very serious thing. We've got to understand the symptoms. How do we know it's taken hold? And this is, the, again, these two. Loss of, of um, concern for neighbor and loss of devotion, lack of devotion to God. Let me just say a, a few things, additional things about man-made rules here. Worth noting. Um, one, three things. One, they have no power to change. Oh, we think they do. They have no power to change, no power to transform, absolutely none. In fact, it'll take you eventually, ultimately, in the other direction. Not spiritual health, but spiritual crippledness. No power to change, no power to attract either. They have a way of obscuring the witness and testimony we are to be giving before the world of the possibility of a gospel-transformed life, right? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But instead, we're about the rules. That's what we're about. Obscuring, clouding, hiding, destroying. No power to change. No power to attract. And finally, they just tend to provoke our sinful hearts to rise up and rebel. That's just, that, that, that's just the tendency. We struggle enough as it is against God's command, God's laws that we're made for. Now you throw this in, the mad maidishness. Yes, I made that up. And we will rise up and rebel in a glad, hostile sort of way. God's commands are truly for our good, though. With that in mind, we need, yes, we need to be adhering to them, but never, never again, never adding aware of these symptoms. Lastly, okay, so we've talked about the cause. That was point one. Point two is something of the course that it takes. Is there any cure? Is there any hope? Yes, and Jesus talks about this very clearly. And I, one way I just would just say summing it up, just a glad, humble submission to his authority. Heeding what he says, heeding what he shows. Let's look at this. What does he say in defense of his disciples? Picking up in verse eight, uh, 3, excuse me, down to verse 8. He said to them, the Pharisees, Have you not read, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law? How on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is taking them back. He's reminding them, reminding them of this historical precedent. David, King David himself. Context too big to get into right now, but David was in need. He's on the run from Saul, he and his men. Hungry, yes, they did in fact take and eat of bread that was originally intended just for the priest. That was the design, that was the point of the bread that's there in the tabernacle, the bread of presence. That's what's being referred to here. But that was ultimately not a violation of the intent. And now on top of that we have the greater David. All that that David was about, this David is. 
great David's greater son, as we sing. Okay, then you've got that. Speaking of priests, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, priests, the priests, not just them, but now in the temple, as they are fulfilling their lawful obligations, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, and their work that they are doing, bloody, nasty work, are not in violation in any way of the Sabbath ordinances because of what that was about. You need to understand this, Pharisees. So it's like Jesus has just given them, I don't know, a body blow and an uppercut. Okay? And now he's about to throw in some roundhouses. Okay? Because he's a, he doesn't just, he makes these astonishing claims now about himself. He's, not, he's got them on, on their heels. He's about to push them into the ropes. So he says about the temple. The temple, your big thing, which by the way, had it been built centuries before, probably would have been one of the wonders of the ancient world, such was its glory and beauty. Herod's temple. This temple, all that that is, about the presence of the living God amongst His people, is embodied in me. He presses them harder, quoting from Hosea 6 about mercy and sacrifice. He's already done that before. He hits them with it again. How can he be so brash? How can he be so bold? How can he say such things because of who he is? Oh, and who is he? He tells them, Lord of the Sabbath. This thing that they're preoccupied with. He's the temple. He's the prophet calling them back to mercy And he's the Lord of the Sabbath. The very thing, by the way, he was talking about at the end of chapter 11. Weeks ago, uh, we were looking at this. um, Chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. The very thing, by the way, that serves as the springboard in Matthew 12. Right? Listen to what Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke, as in opposed to theirs, my yoke is easy and my burden is, is light. So, heed what he says. Who is this one who says such thing? Heed what he says, and now heed what he shows of himself. What does he show of himself? Well, we see this in, in his, not just not moving from the defense of his disciples to the healing of this man. Verses 11 and, uh, through 13, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Now, so far, he sounds like pretty much any rabbi of the time. This is a, a way of, do, of arguing, right? A, a way of presenting a case and using the logic and pressing, right? So, so far, he, sounds, he seems to be just like any other wise rabbi of the day, except for what's about to happen. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. Now, this man's condition, again, his, his hand is, is, is withered. We don't know why. Some nerve, We don't know if it was an accident or an injury or a birth defect or what it was, but his hand is withered. It is atrophied. It is unusable. And when you think in terms of what that meant for that time, you know, so much of your livelihood is likely going to be based on manual labor, and he's got but one good hand. And Jesus, with a word, now it would have been impressive enough, right, just to, to touch it. But now we're talking from across the way, with a word, 
heals him. Astonishing teaching back there in verses 3 through 8, and now this astonishing work here in verses 11 through 13. A declaration of who he is, a demonstration of who he is. Ours is not to be adding to what he has said. Ours is to be humbly and gladly submitting ourselves to him and what he says. I mean, who else could say such things? Really, who else? Who else could do such things? Who else? No one else. But the living God Himself. The Messiah, the Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior. His commands. His commands are indeed good. Oh, that we would hear, adhere to them and never add to them. Of course, the, the, the assumption, right? Well, put it another way. His commands are good and meant for our good, but how can we say that because He Himself is good? Don't you let, just let that settle in for a minute. His commands are good, and can only be, and work and are intended for our good, and can only be, because He Himself is good. Deeply, truly so. Now that sounds like a great logical series of statements, but do we believe that? Do we believe in the goodness of the living God? Are we willing to entrust ourselves to the goodness of the living God? To Jesus. To Jesus. Because to the extent that we can't, we then will add to what He has said. Right? Do we believe that He is in fact as good as Jesus is? Um, great scene from a musical years ago. Obviously it's been redone time and time again. Annie. Right? This great scene uh, in, in the course of the play, the musical, the film. Little orphan Annie finally gets her chance to get away from the orphanage when Daddy Warbucks shows up and wants her to bring her uh, to his house for a week. Uh, Grace, his secretary, administrative assistant, I don't know what she is, uh, picks her up and brings her to the mansion. Uh, Annie is just understandably overwhelmed considering what she's come from and now what she's in. She's overwhelmed. She's can't, her eyes can hardly take in these massive floral arrangements and this balcony and these spiral staircases and the these stained glass windows. And then this beautiful, beautiful dialogue takes place between Grace and Annie. Grace asks, well, Annie, what would you like to do first? Well, Annie's still thinking about life at the orphanage, and so this is how she responds. Well, I could do the windows first, and then the floors. That way, if I drip and Grace just cuts her off. No, 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 you, you don't understand. You don't understand. You don't have to do any cleaning here. While you're with us, you're our guest. To which Annie then says, I think I'm going to like it here. Okay, that's a great moment in the story. Um, wonderful image, great moment. Somewhat pivotal, I guess. It does actually fall a bit short of what we're talking about here. 
Because you see, for the Christian, in God's grace, we are not brought into the household as a temporary guest. We've been brought in as His blood-bought adopted children, eternally secure in His good and safe care, redeemed by His once-for-all work, nothing to be added to, nothing can ever be taken away from, redeemed and set free from the tyranny of our sin and its dominion over us. And friends, to the extent that we can hear and believe that, the extent to which we can trust and embrace that, we will then gladly let this Jesus speak into and over, through and through, we will then hear and heed all that He is and has to say unto us. Because we know who it is that is speaking. The one who has saved us from our very selves and is so beautifully good. Let's pray together.